You may be seated. This morning we're going to continue in our series in Galatians, and so I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And this morning we're going to be looking at the last few verses in chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 974. 974. I'm going to uh, begin reading actually in verse 23, um, and then we'll read through, and uh, this morning we'll focus on verses 26 to 29. This is God's Word. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. Well, Paul is writing in this letter to a group of Christians in Galatia who are experiencing an identity crisis. They are uncertain. They are insecure about who they are in Christ. There are some false teachers who have arrived on the scene And they have unsettled these Christians. They have um, caused them to question their most fundamental belief in God's grace and mercy in Christ. And so whether vocally or inwardly, privately in their own hearts, they are asking some fundamental questions. Does God accept me? Am I justified before God? Am I welcomed into God's presence, not reluctantly, but with joy? Is my relationship with God secure? Can I be assured that I will be with Him in eternity, or will I be eternally condemned? These are some of the things that the Galatians church is is wrestling with. These are the questions at hand. And when we're insecure about who we are, our hearts naturally gravitate toward some law or some standard by which we can prove ourselves to God and to others to find security. It may be some standard of success or some worldly standard of beauty or popularity, or it may be some religious duty or law which we embrace in order to prove ourselves to God and to others. Well, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul has been arguing that we are justified by grace, by the promise of God and not by the law. That we are justified by faith and not by works. And in these last verses in chapter 3, Paul now begins to press this truth and to apply it specifically to the Galatians. So he's been making this argument from Old Testament passages of Scripture and carrying this argument through chapter 3, but now as he comes to the end of chapter 3, he wants to apply it specifically to the Galatians. 
He wants them to know who they are in Christ, and He wants them to be confident of who they are in Christ. Notice the repeated use of the word you in our text. Look there in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of, as of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so do you see how now Paul is taking this truth of the gospel and he's applying it directly to these Galatian Christians. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ and calling them to be secure in their identity in Christ. Therefore, I want us to consider this morning from our text three statements regarding our identity in Christ. Three statements regarding our identity in Christ. First, you are sons of God. You are sons of God. Secondly, you are one in Christ. You are one in Christ. And third, you are Abraham's offspring. Abraham's offspring. Look first of all in verses 26 and 27, and we see this truth that you are sons of God. Look there in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So in one sense we could say that the problem in Galatia resulted in a great deal of confusion about the fatherhood of God. How do we become members of God's family? Who are God's children? Who are the sons and daughters of God? This was the question that was being asked. And some were suggesting that the fatherhood of God is dependent upon one's ethnicity. So there were some Jews who were saying, we are God's children by birth. We are Jews, and therefore we are God's children. And you Gentiles, and that would have predominantly been the makeup of the Galatian churches, You Gentiles are members of the family, but more like distant cousins, not sons and daughters. And this led to the idea that the fatherhood of God is not only dependent upon ethnicity, but also is dependent upon obedience to the law. So these Jews who were making this claim that they were the children of God based on their ethnicity might go on to say, and God has given us the law. And we are God's children because we are Jews by ethnicity, but also because God has chosen to give us specifically the law, and we keep that law. And therefore, we are the children of God. And so if you really want to be a member of God's family, then you need to be like us, and you need to keep God's law. You need to be circumcised like we are, and you need to follow our cultural traditions and customs, and you need to adopt our dietary rules and laws. And so what we've seen in chapter 3 is that Paul responds to this by saying, yes, the Jews are greatly blessed because God revealed the law to them. But the problem is, no one keeps the law perfectly. That's the problem. And so the purpose of the law was not to save them, but rather the purpose of the law was to reveal to them their need to be saved. 
and to come to faith in Christ Jesus. Because here's the problem with trying to work yourself into a family. The problem with trying to work yourself into a family is that no matter how much work you do, the highest position you can attain is that of a servant. You can clean the yard. You can wash the dishes. You can take out the trash. You can wash and fold the laundry. You can fix what's broken. You can cook dinner. You can make the beds. But at the end of the day, you are no more than a servant. Perhaps a much-loved and appreciated servant, but still a servant. Not a son, not a daughter. So if the fatherhood of God is not dependent upon ethnicity, if the fatherhood of God is not dependent upon observing the law, then how does one become a member of God's family? How can we come to know God as our Father? And this is where Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that the fatherhood of God is ours through faith in Christ Jesus. Look there in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, here it is, through faith. In other words, through faith in the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, God has chosen to adopt us into His family and to grant us the full rights and privileges of sonship. So on the one hand, we can work and serve and slave, but at the end of the day, we will only be a servant. On the other hand, what's required for one to become a true son, a member of the family of God, is that the Father must choose to adopt us into His family. Sonship can only be granted by the will of the Father. And God has chosen to adopt all of us, every one, into His family who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, not just distant cousins, not servants, but that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Are. One Christian pastor and theologian, Philip Ryken, has said it this way, quote, Adoption shows the contrast between faith and works in the most vivid way. For no one ever works his way into a family. The highest position one can achieve by working in a household is a servant. The only way to become a son or daughter is by adoption, end of quote. And then notice Paul goes on to say in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now notice this. He says, For as many of you as were baptized. Here he's delineating a particular group of people and he defines or identifies them as the sons of God. So do you see that? If you look at verse 26... He says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then verse 27, for because as many of you as were baptized into Christ. He's talking about the same group of people. Those who are sons of God through faith have been baptized and they have put on Christ. Now, this is actually the only time in Galatians that baptism is mentioned. And it's remarkable here how closely the Apostle Paul associates baptism with being a son of God. 
One of the reasons why I point this out is because we are a Baptist church. And so oftentimes folks will come to our church, and rightfully so, they might ask, what do you believe about baptism? What do you believe about baptizing infants? What do you believe about baptizing believers? Well, let's consider what Paul has to say here in this verse in particular. Is Paul teaching here in Galatians that you must be baptized in order to be a son of God? Is the rationale, those who are baptized into Christ are sons of God, therefore you must be baptized in order to be a son of God? Well, no. That would contradict everything that Paul has said in this letter, right? Paul has been teaching us that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and not by works of the law, not by religious ceremonies or rites. So if Paul was teaching this, essentially Paul would just be swapping out circumcision for baptism, right? And like the false teachers were teaching. So he would say, okay, well, instead of being, you know, believing in Jesus and being circumcised, no, you don't need to do that in order to be a Christian. You just need to believe in Jesus and be baptized. That'll make you a Christian. Of course, that's not what Paul is teaching in this letter. It's actually obvious if you look at the larger context here. If you go back to verse 21 to verse 29, Paul actually uses the word faith five times, and he only uses the word baptism once. So Paul's emphasis here is obviously on faith, faith in Christ. So Paul is not teaching salvation by baptism. Instead, what I believe is happening here is that the Christians, the early Christians, were so conscientious to follow Jesus' command to be baptized once they believed, that in the minds of the early Christians, faith in Christ and baptism were almost synonymous, so that they could speak of them interchangeably. So in the first century, we see this here and we see this in a number of places with the Apostle Paul, it was not uncommon for them to speak of one's conversion as synonymous with their baptism. So one might say, I remember when you heard the gospel and you were baptized and the Lord changed your life. Or I remember since your baptism how your life has been changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. Now in those statements, are they saying that baptism was the thing that saved them? No, but what they are, what they are recognizing is that when one heard the gospel and believed in Christ and were baptized, that was kind of all one, uh, uh, different components of one experience. It all came together. Because to believe in Jesus, the assumption is that if you believe in Jesus, of course you're baptized. So that Paul could write an early New Testament church and say, all of you have been baptized into Christ. The assumption is everyone who believes in Jesus is baptized. So notice, Paul says here, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So, do we believe in baptizing infants? And the answer would be no. Because the assumption is, when an infant is baptized, oftentimes the assumption is that you are baptizing the infant in the hope that one day they will come to believe and trust in Christ. In the hope that one day they will put on Christ and follow Him. But that's not the way that the New Testament talks about baptism. 
Instead, over and over again, the New Testament talks about baptism in this way. Notice what Paul says. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. In other words, your baptism is merely an outward expression of an inward reality, something that has already happened. You have trusted in Christ. You have put on Christ. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Who is Paul describing? He's describing a believer. And so baptism is reserved for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, for those who have put on Christ. One author says it this way, quote, Faith secures the union that is between us and Christ. Faith secures the union. Baptism signifies it outwardly and visibly. Thus in Christ, by faith inwardly and baptism outwardly, we are all sons of God, end of quote. So who are the members of God's family? Those Christians who are trusting in Christ and who have been baptized into His name. One Christian author likens baptism to receiving our adoption papers. Here you see Paul is talking about the reality of us being sons of God in baptism. And he, this author likens baptism to the receiving of our adoption papers. It makes it official. We are in baptism officially and publicly identifying ourselves with God, our Father, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are officially identifying ourselves with the family of God. And so let me encourage you that if you have been united to Christ by faith, if you are a son, a daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ, Let me encourage you to obey Jesus' command to be baptized, to make it official, to declare it publicly, and to follow Jesus in baptism. Perhaps a next great step for you would be to mark on your connection card that you would like more information about following Jesus in baptism. Or you could come and talk to me after the service or another one of our church leaders here, and we can help you to begin to prepare to follow Christ in obedience, and to be baptized. So the first statement that Paul makes here regarding the Galatians' identity is you are sons of God, sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, you are one in Christ. You are one in Christ. Look there in verse 28 and we read these words. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this is a fairly well-known passage of Scripture from the Apostle Paul, and notice here that Paul identifies in this verse three social categories, okay? So the first category is ethnicity, Jew and Greek. The second category is rank, slave and free. The third category is gender, male and female. And we know that all of these social categories have been distorted by sin, and when they are distorted by sin, it results in division and conflict. It it does not result in oneness. And this was true in Paul's day. There were some Jews who thanked God every day that they were not Gentiles, they were not slaves, and they were not women. 
Listen to this Jewish prayer from the first century. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. And the Gentiles, all those who were not Jews, were not exempt. Many Gentiles sought to find their fundamental identity in these categories. So some Greek men thanked the gods that they were born human beings and not beasts, citizens and not slaves, men and not women. And so given the social climate of Paul's day, you can imagine how revolutionary, how shocking, how radical this statement was in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, all these categories are irrelevant in assessing one's relationship with God. All of these categories that are spoken of here that cause such division in society pale in comparison to these two realities. One, that we are all sinners. And two, that our only hope of salvation, no matter our ethnicity or our rank or our gender, our only hope of salvation is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. In that sense, we are all on equal footing before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our sense of our need for the gospel is absolutely crucial to maintaining Christian unity. Martin Luther said it this way, the Protestant reformer, quote, May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. End of quote. Do you see how that sense of our need and that sense of of gratitude for God's grace in Christ Jesus is absolutely fundamental for the church to experience unity with one another. I'm here at the cross based on nothing that could be accredited to me, but solely on what Christ has accomplished for me at the cross. And that's true of the person next to me, over here, and over here, and over there, and over there, all on equal footing before the cross. Now, of course, some have, I believe, wrongly interpreted Paul's words here to mean that in Christ, all social distinctions have been abolished and obliterated, that they cease to exist. I think that's a misunderstanding and misapplication of this text, and we need to clarify that. So some would say that these categories now, because we are in Christ and Christ has come, these categories of ethnicity, of rank, of gender, cease to exist altogether. But of course that is not what Paul is saying. 
Paul still identified himself as a Jew. He recognized his own ethnic heritage. Paul still identified himself as a subject and citizen of the Roman Empire. And listen, my friends, when Paul was converted, we can be confident that he did not experience a gender crisis. Paul knew that he was a man. As one author said, quote, the church is not a raceless, classless, androgynous society, end of quote. And so when we become Christians, we don't cease to be white or black or Hispanic or Asian. We don't cease to be an employer or an employee. We don't cease to be male and female. That is not what Paul is teaching. I think it's abundantly clear from the context in which Paul is writing these verses here. And furthermore, if you look at Paul's larger writings, it's abundantly clear. So as it relates to ethnicity, as I mentioned before, Paul recognizes his own Jewish heritage. Later on, actually, in a, in a letter that he will write to the church in Rome... He says that there will come a day when a large gathering of ethnic Jews will come to believe and trust in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. And so he's recognizing, again, category of ethnicity. Or John talks about in Revelation, when redemption is full and Christ returns, then there will be a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, right? Recognizing those ethnic distinctions. As it relates to slave and free. We know that in other places in Scripture, the Bible clearly teaches that forced slavery is wrong, that it is sin. So, for example, chattel slavery, which was practiced in America, was a horrible, horrible evil. But in Paul's day, there were some forms of slavery that were voluntary. So, for example, if someone got an excessive debt, like today you could think of someone who was, you know, ran up credit card debt, $200,000, and they couldn't pay it. Then in Paul's day, there was the opportunity to voluntarily give yourself to someone else to work for them, to be their slave, until you paid that debt off, and then you were free. And Paul would say that if you find yourself in one of those agreements, in one of those arrangements, you should honor your obligations and fulfill your responsibilities. Of course, this has implications for how we relate to bosses and employers today. Paul was not advocating anarchy in the workplace. In other contexts, when it comes to gender, we see that Paul clearly teaches that there is a distinction between men and women. Of course, in our time today, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian husband and a Christian father, a Christian man, what it means to be a Christian woman and a Christian wife and a Christian mother. There's a great deal of confusion around sexuality as a whole. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Some would read these verses here and say, there is no men and women anymore. See, that's what Paul is teaching. And of course that is absurd. The Apostle Paul in other places, like Ephesians chapter 5, says that a man is called to be a Christian husband, a woman is called to be a Christian wife, and marriage is to be marked by the fact that you have one man and one woman who are married to one another in the covenant of marriage. And so this idea that multiple people can marry each other, or two men, or two women, or that sort of thing, is foreign to the Apostle Paul. Men are called to lovingly and humbly lead in their homes, and in the churches. 
And what we see in Scripture is that women are called to joyfully respond to this loving, humble leadership. So Paul in no way is saying that these categories are to be entirely abolished. Okay? But what Paul is teaching is as it relates to our salvation before God, being justified before God, that the gospel teaches us that we have a new identity that transcends these social differences. That transcends these social identities. So that our only hope before God in terms of being justified is our faith in Jesus Christ. No one is justified before God because they're Jew or they're Greek. Because they're slave or they're free. Because they're white or they're black. Because they're Asian or Hispanic. Because they're male or because they're female. The only way one is justified before God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we are all equal and on equal footing. And we are all one in Christ. As much as it's important for us to emphasize this idea that these social categories have not been entirely abolished in Christ, we also need to emphasize that these social categories have been transcended by a greater reality. Because today, and isn't there so much confusion today around these, these issues? Today, there are some who emphasize a popular philosophy that insist that the way to deal with these social differences in conflict today is by accentuating and fixating on the differences. So, so if, one, if one extreme is to abolish them and say, well, they've all gone away, then another extreme is to fixate on them and emphasize them. Some refer to this as critical race theory. Some have referred to it as being woke. But the fundamental premise is to divide all of society into various categories. The oppressed and the oppressor. Black and white. Majority and minority. Male and female and non-gender. And then to endlessly rehearse all the various ways that one group has slighted or offended or harmed another group. And then what happens is that folks begin to perceive all of reality through these various lenses. So for example, those who would identify with critical race theory will tend to view everything through the lens of race. Those who identify with Marxism will tend to view everything through the lens of class. Those who identify with the LGBT community, some of them will view everything through the lens of gender. And what is the result? We've seen it tragically in our own society, haven't we? Animosity, resentment, tribalism, division, unrest. Where we highlight over and over and over and over and over again, the differences among us. And we retreat into our own tribes. And we harbor hostility against each other. We should be as concerned about this as we see these things playing out in our own society. But we should especially be concerned about how this has resulted in division in the body of Christ. Do you see how what Paul is teaching here? is directly opposed to that type of worldly philosophy and tribalism. 
Paul is speaking to this Galatian church here who is divided in many ways and unsettled and, and, and set in opposition against one another. And he's saying to these churches in Galatia, your fundamental identity is in Christ. And that transcends all these other distinctions. Your fundamental identity is not in your ethnicity, it's not in your rank, it's not in your class, it's not in your gender, but it is in Christ. And here's the thing Paul is saying, and it's already a reality. Even though you're divided amongst yourselves, even though you're battling with each other, you are one in Christ because Christ has made it a reality. Christ has purchased you and claimed you. He's washed you. Now live the reality that he has made you to be. In other words, Christ has created a new humanity, a new community, and our fundamental identity is in him. And let me just say that as a church here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, our desire is to pursue this kind of diverse unity. That our church would increasingly become a reflection of the larger church of Jesus Christ. That that would be reflected in our leadership. It would be reflected in our membership. It would be reflected in the culture of our church. But that diverse unity must be rooted not in some worldly philosophy, which ultimately causes greater division, but it must be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should acknowledge that Christians have not always lived this out well. That sometimes Christians have really failed in this area. But at the same time, we should not fail to recognize the glorious and unparalleled power of the gospel to transcend every social category and create a community that is amazingly diverse and one. It has been said that in Christianity, people pray and they worship in more languages and in more diverse cultural expressions than any other religion in the world. And that, my friends, is a testimony to the power of the gospel. And Paul is saying to these Galatian Christians here, if you, if you understood, if you embraced who you are in Christ, then you would stop hurting one another. You would stop belittling others. You would stop dividing into factions. And you would find your identity in Christ and in Him alone. So, you are sons of God. You are one in Christ. Third, you are Abraham's offspring. And we won't spend nearly as much time here. Look there in verse 29 and we read these words. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, as we think about the larger context of Galatians chapter 3, in many ways, this is kind of the climax of Paul's argument. You know, all through Galatians chapter 3, Paul has been dealing with, with this issue, who are the true sons of Abraham? The promise was made to Abraham that through him, blessing would come to all the nations. So who are the sons of Abraham? And there were some Jews, as we've mentioned before, who were saying, we are the sons of Abraham by physical descent. It's in our DNA. And if you want to be a son of Abraham, you need to be like Abraham. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law. And as I've mentioned before, and as we've been working through uh, Galatians chapter 3, the Lord Jesus faced this claim, right? So in 
John chapter 8, there were those who were opposing Jesus. And one of the things they said to Jesus was, we are the sons of Abraham. And you remember what Jesus' response was to them. Jesus responded by saying, your father is the devil. In other words, he says, you're not the sons of Abraham, you're the sons of the devil. And why would Jesus say that to them? Because the promise that was made to Abraham was standing right before them. Right? He was the promise. And they were rejecting the promise. Rather than trusting in the promise and believing in the promise, they were rejecting it. And so Jesus says, it doesn't matter what your physical descent is. If you've denied the promise of Abraham, now manifest in my person and in my work, then you are not a son of Abraham. You are a son of the devil. And here's Paul, a Jew himself, now turning to these Gentiles, to the Galatian churches, and he says, you are the sons of Abraham. You are the heirs of the promise. Not because you were circumcised like Abraham, but because like Abraham, you believed the promise. And so all the promises of God are now yours because you are sons and daughters of Abraham. So Paul is writing to these Christians in Galatia, and they are experiencing an identity crisis. They are uncertain, they are insecure about where they stand with God. These false teachers have unsettled them. And Paul writes to them. And not only does he give them this theological argument all through kind of the Old Testament, showing them that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, and that's always been the case. Even Abraham was saved by faith and not by works of the law. But then he takes that truth as we get to the end of chapter 3 here, And he applies it to the minds and the hearts of his readers, to the Galatian Christians who are struggling with their identity. And he says to them, listen, understand this. You are sons of God. You have put on Christ. You stand righteous and accepted before God. Not because you're a Jew or a Greek. Not because you're slave or free. Not because you're male or female. But because you have trusted in the Lord Jesus. You are one with God's church. You are Abraham's offspring. And you are heirs according to the promise. All of the promises of God are yours in Christ. How could this be the case? How could such good news come to these Gentiles in Galatia? It has everything to do with their relationship with Christ. Do you notice that five times in just these few verses, Paul makes mention of their union with Christ? In verse 26, in Christ Jesus. In verse 27, you have been baptized into Christ. In verse 27, you have put on Christ. In verse 28, you are all one in Christ. In verse 29, you belong to Christ. How can the promises of God be yours? 
How can you experience the promise of God's salvation? How can you receive His grace and mercy and forgiveness? How can you be a son, a daughter of God? How can you be united to God's people? Through faith in the Lord Jesus. If you have not believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you, implore you to do so today. And if you have, if you have, then rest secure in what is yours in Christ. Stop trying to prove yourself before God and others and receive what is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life-giving power of the gospel. And Lord, we thank you that although we are naturally rebels and sinners, that you have come to us declaring good news in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to receive this good news by faith. And Lord, we pray that we would not be unsettled by false gospels, by false hopes, by the lies and the deceit of this world. But Lord, we pray that we would be established firmly and rest securely in the hope that is ours in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for calling us in Christ to be your sons and daughters, for making us who are naturally divisive and tribal, for making us one in the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for calling us of all people to be the heirs of the promise of salvation. Lord, we pray that you would take this word now and that you would apply it to our hearts and give us confidence and joy in Christ. And it's in his name we pray.